This is Tani Talks Radio, the share where we talk a topic for the week for the audience members to keep, usually 35 to 45 minutes or so in a weekly format. This year, of course, should be for the zechus of the Rafu and Yeshua of everyone in the world, especially for the safety of all the soldiers, for the return of all the captives, for the Rafu Shalim of all the injured and sick, and for the speedily coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. And may that day, in fact, be today. We talk a lot about, especially in secular culture, non-Jewish society, they talk a lot about commitments. When they come to their new year, they're all about what can I do for commitment? What can I do for commitment? What can I do? I got to commit. I actually just got an email today from my site, from my overall site. You know, when you work in 75 for the DOE, for the public school system, there's many different sites connected to an overall principal, and there are a couple of vice principals, and each site has what's called a unit coordinator, which is basically a lead teacher, a head teacher. So the principal sends out a message talking about the new year. People have commitments, and people think about commitments, but the problem is people don't stick to their commitments because when you think about an end goal usually you throw it off this year I'm going to lose 15 pounds oftentimes it's a very daunting thing instead of focusing on the result you really need to focus on the process instead of saying I'm going to lose 15 pounds you should say I'm going to try to eat something healthy every day if you commit in a certain way in certain manageable methods in certain manageable aspects it's much better and much easier that's why Rosh Hashanah a lot of people Think a lot of daunting tasks. Also, Lahavdil Rosh Hashanah is our official restart, re-kicking, rebooting of the new year. But it shouldn't be so overwhelming. You can't say this year I'm going to be a terrific, perfect person because you're looking at an end goal that's not realistic, not attainable, and not really functional. You have to think about one small thing. What could I do each day a little bit? They say a famous story of a famous sage who thought about what to do each year. Excuse me, still have a cold. <coughs> what can he do each year? He said his miler for that year, I don't remember which sage, which gadol it was, his miler for that year was that every time he benched, obviously he knew the whole thing by heart, backwards and forwards, but every time he benched, he decided he was going to look in a bencher, in a sitter for each time. That would be his little thing. So if that is what a gadol, a a great chacham, a great sage would do, how much more so we take a little thing, you know. This year, Joe can take an extra two seconds when he says shahako. This year, this person can stand for an extra second instead of moving or whatnot when saying ashayatzer after the bathroom. And halavai, everyone says all the brachos and says it with intention and remembers to say it. But little things we could do to be committed. As you think about the secular new year, <coughs> just came and you see people having these very overarching goals and commitments. This year I'm going to eat right. This year I'm going to walk 17,000 steps a day. By next year I'm going to be so healthy, so fit, I won't even need a Fitbit. You know, it has to be things that are attainable, reachable. Many of us are no stranger to commitment. We take on massive amounts of roles, jobs, responsibilities, commitments in our own life. The biggest one probably marriage and next to that having and raising children we shall be zocha if we don't have our marriage partner you should find it today and if you don't have children yet you should be zocha to have them today everyone should be zocha to have yeshua and Rafus this year especially today think about your own life what is the biggest commitment in your life in our own lives anything we set out to do and keep up with is a commitment that we should need to try to stick to if you join the daf you make a commitment and you commit to it every day i will say <coughs> That with the increasing responsibilities of life and the increasing years, the way that I've gone about it has been, you know, having to be cut down. I used to listen to a shir every day for a long time. 
Then I switched to, you know, a faster shear and then a faster shear. Then I switched to reading Rabbi Art School and I found a new website where it gives me the whole DAF, you know, in an email, which I really look forward to every day. And they have a website where you can look at it and you can read through the whole DAF in a succinct kind of like a Cliff Notes version, Lahabdil. But it's something we try to commit to every day. If a person's a Steinmicker, they're supposed to do it every day. If you're part of daily learning emails, which I highly encourage, and, and make sure you are Kovea Itim, even for a few minutes. OU Torah has excellent ones. There's the Mishnah, <coughs> Mishnah Yomi, there's Nach Yomi, there's Halacha Yomi, there's the Rambam Yomi, there's the Steinmicker Yomi, it goes through an Aliyah a day, and there's the Mitzvah Yomi, if I didn't say that already. I think there's six of them that I get Every day, they're wonderful. They come right to my email every day, and then they double up for Shabbos and Yom Tov. Simple, easy way to get your Kovei Itim that day. Again, Kovei Itim, when Hashem asks you the question after 120 years, He doesn't say, did you learn 100 hours a day? He says, did you make sure that it was priority? Was it permanent, affixed to your day every day? So people have the misnomer when they say, is this person Kavaya Itim? It doesn't mean the amount of hours. It doesn't mean the quantity. It means the quality. Did you set aside and commit every day to learn something, to learn anything, to start off your day before you do anything else? What is the first thing you do? You check your 150 WhatsApps. You check your 17 emails. If it's Torah emails, because I'm to hate. But what do you first go to do? You go run to, to do the next uh, Blukit, to do the next uh, Minecraft level. If you're a kid, you run to do the next uh, Sudoku or the next whatever. Do the first thing first. Set up your priority first. If you say to him every day and you read your Torah emails every day, you do the Daf email every day, that should be the first thing. And that shows the Koveya Itim. If you're committed to things, it should be done every day. It should be part of the commitment. It should start out with the commitment. And it should be first. If you run workshops, you run seminars, you mentor others, it's a commitment to speak to and to cling to depending on the frequency, but we need to keep to it. If you are a writer, you have to commit to deadlines. If you're working on a book, you commit to writing it. You set aside a deadline for yourself. In the middle of reading a beautiful, wonderful tribute book to Rabbi Kelmer, the wonderful Lord Asra of a wonderful community on Long Island, and the author talks about how a deadline is very difficult, and he had to commit to a certain deadline. He was going back and forth if he wanted to do it. Beautifully written, excellent book, highly recommended, called If Not Higher, local at your Judaic uh, local Jewish bookstore, probably on Amazon too. But there's a commitment to that also. If you take a job, you commit to that job, you have to do it every day. Whatever the roles you may have, whether a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a therapist, or the like, make sure to commit and don't quit. When I think about working with the public school system, when you first join, I was just talking about this the other day with uh, the coworkers as well, when you think about what you're supposed to do, it's very overwhelming. The amount of time you're supposed to put in, even in general, pause, when a person thinks about working life, it's very daunting. A person starts work 20, 22, 25. I started the official situation at 27. But how long a commitment is it for working? You hope that you're, you're firm or you hope where you're working, you're happy and you're fulfilled and you love what you do. But apparently and unfortunately, a lot of people do not, which is not for now, but a whole nother lecture, a whole nother share. We talk about that. How many years does a person get working? If they start at 20, 25, 27, a person could work, you know, going strong and have to work in today's society and, and in, in today's inflation and whatnot and craziness, has to work 40 years. That's a long time. But to stay in one system is hard. When we first joined, when I first joined about 8.5 years ago now, almost at the nine years, 10 years to vest, 
they ask for X amount of years. For the previous tier, which is basically the previous level that people came in, they had a good. They had, were offered the 25-55. You work 25 years, you could retire at age 55, which is actually not bad. That's a good age, and then you can do whatever you want. You get the 60% of your salary, the top three years, they average it out. And then you get a certain salary forever with the benefits, if you stay in America, I believe. At that age, obviously, my tier is six, not as good. And according to my research, it's probably, you know, around 33 years and age 63, which is not great. Sounds daunting. Sounds a lot. I just turned a certain age yesterday. So we have X amount of years left. It sounds like a lot. However, when we take it day by day, it's not as bad. I remember starting and thinking, oh my gosh, 30 years is a lot. And now I'm like, wow, it's eight and a half years. That went by pretty fast. You break down the commitments, you break down the ideas, you break down the things into daily manageable tasks as a way to go about things. What is the definition of commitment? Merriam-Webster defines commitment as adherence to something to which one is bound by a pledge (coughs) or a duty. Everydaypower.com points out that commitment is the ability to stick with something long after the initial excitement is gone. Kolos chalos kashos is the phrase that goes in Judaism. And the interesting thing about kolos chalos kashos is that when something starts, it's always very exciting. You know, you start a venture, you start an idea. It's very, very exciting in the beginning. Starting, you know, my various side projects, you know, very exciting. But once you stick to it and you commit to it, it loses that initial excitement. It's hard to keep at and it's hard to keep going. It's hard to keep that power from the beginning. EverydayPower.com points out that commitment is the ability to stick with something long after the initial excitement is gone. Sticking with a project, an idea, a relationship, or a goal, even when it's not easy, is what we're supposed to stick to. The phrase that pops into my head that can apply to many of us is, I'm no stranger to commitment. I further would say that this phrase also would apply to many of us. I know commitment well, and I live with it all the time. Going to grad school for a profession (coughs) is a big commitment. My wife recently, in the past few years, started grad school. Very big commitment, especially after having kids and being in a different stage of life, not connected to school. That's why I felt like, you know, if you do school, the best is to do undergrad, graduate, get done with it, because it's very hard to go back. Very, very, very hard to go back, especially with the 10-year, 15, 20-year gap. A lot of people go back much later in life. I don't know how they do that. Very difficult. Three years for OT school for me was a big commitment. Actually, in the first semester, I was very close to pulling out. I remember sitting on Sukkot and thinking, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I wanted to pull out really badly. But thank God I stuck with it and <coughs> stayed with it and made it through in the end. But it's hard. A lot of things are very hard. Living a Jewish life with its holidays, halachot and laws and the like are also a major commitment. A lot of people, when I try to explain the different holidays in the non-Jewish world where I work, very hard to explain different things. Some of them make sense to them. But some of them don't make sense. You know, Tubashvat would be a pretty hard one to explain to them, I think. That's coming up, God willing, in a little while. Here in winter 2023, even explain to them Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, you know, 2,000 years ago, the temple, the purification of the oil. A lot of them gave me weird looks. Very esoteric thing to, to explain. But we know it's our commitment. It's our wonderful, beautiful thing to commit to. But it's 
not so easy to do. A couple of years ago, working on an online smicha program was very hard for me. Well, I thought it was a great idea. In the end, it was a great idea, but it felt like a very big commitment. It was a couple of semesters. Have it, had, had to go through it. The, each test was like four hours of very difficultness. Not a real word. Very difficult for me. Had the timer. Asked my wife to do the timer. I was sweating bullets. Each question, if I didn't move on to the next question, I'm not going to have enough time. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Starting at 7, finishing it almost at midnight, sending it in to the person and like holding my breath till I get the email back. Difficult. Difficult things. Commitments can be difficult. But Baruch Hashem, we got through it and we went through it. When it comes to different things in life, it's not always so easy to stick to the commitments. You know, many times a person wants to to just leave. And I think of different aspects of life for people that it's difficult for them. You want to write a book. You want to do this. But it's a process. People think about the result, but they don't think about the process. Coming back to what we started saying, you know, with the secular year, they think about the result. They don't think about the process. They They don't be involved themselves in the process. They don't analyze and fully appreciate the process because it really is about the day-to-day yes you want to be married and have wonderful kids but you have to go through the process you have to find the spouse and you have to go through the years to be able to have the kids and raise the kids you can't just jump to the end goal you have to make sure to go through the process you can't just jump to the end goal you got to stay the course do not quit Commitments come in many forms, many shapes, many sizes. Take the idea of prioritizing spouses, kids, and family, and I say it in that order purposefully. You know, there was once an article, a question. People say, do you prioritize kids or or the spouse? And the answer is the spouse, because when the kids see that you prioritize the spouse, they get a, a humding of an idea of what's really the priority, what really is the first commitment. If not for us, you kids wouldn't be here, you know, is the phrase how it goes. You got to prioritize the spouse first, then the kids, then everyone else. What should come first? Unfortunately, today in the world, there is not an aspect that people actually work things through. There's the, the grass is greener situation. Irreconcilable differences is a ridiculous phrase that came into the parlor, I don't know when, but definitely not in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, much more recent than that. A major problem of parallel lives, people don't interact, people don't join together, people don't do things together. Don't be parallel life, be joined, be in unison, be with proper prioritize and priorities. Don't take your spouse or relationships, especially with Hashem, for granted. Put in the work, put in the effort, put in the giving for it to be a beautiful relationship, for it to be a wonderful back and forth. How more apropos than now when we see how difficult things is, how difficult it is for Israel in this war with evil, basically, a war with evil here in winter 2023. So many people are off fighting, left their wives behind, left their kids behind, left their husbands behind, left so many people behind, can't take anything for granted. Our land is under attack. Our way of life is under attack. Judaism itself and morals literally are under attack. Can't take anything for granted. But especially with the foremost foundational relationship of a life, and everybody should be zocha to find their person, Meir Vimenu. We look at what it says in Barashas 2.24. Bet Chav Chav Dalin. Vayomer Ha'adam Zos Hapam Etzem Me'atzamai. Obasar Me'bibasarai. Lezos Yikarei Isha Ki Me'ha'ish Lakechazos. Person talks about. And a person thinks about this pasuk, and it can really resonate. The man said, the man, because there's only one man in the entire world, this one at last <coughs> is born of my bones. Why did he say that? 
because man looked at every single animal and named every single animal and realized that each one was not for him. But finally, at last, this one is mine. <coughs> this one is for me. This one at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man was she taken. And then it says, Al Kinyazov Ish is Aviv Esimo. Very interesting the phraseology. I've asked my wife this before. Why does it say just the Ish leaves the Aviv and the Imo, but it doesn't say that the Isha leaves the Aviv of Shala and the Ima Shala Ima and Aviah. I don't know why it doesn't say that, but it talks about the man leaving the household and clinging to the wife, and there'll be one soul. But even so, it obviously goes both ways because they're both together unified as one unit that was split in half, and hopefully they come find each other in life. Hence, a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. Because a man leaves his parents' homes and becomes dedicated, committed, prioritizing only to the spouse, hopefully, ideally. Normally, one person with his wife, he leaves everything behind and is one with her. She is and must become his priority, and everything else is left behind. She is the most important. Everything he does directly affects her. He must stick with her, do everything for her. When he takes action, he must think how it will affect her. For example, and I admit this often, I am not a morning person. I believe some of my kids have gotten this wonderful gene, especially the girly. Not a morning person, hate mornings. If I come off as cranky and grumpy, it rubs off on everyone, especially the wife, and it ruins everyone's day. So you have to make sure to be better, especially me, at mornings to positively affect everyone's days. Think about what you do, how it affects your spouse, kids, and others. For example, if you go to a kiddish for an hour, while the wife, I'm not saying that I do this, but there could be examples of some people in the middle of Chile that do this. If you go to a kiddush for an hour, while the wife is beside herself with the screaming children, even if you bring food for home for them, which not everyone does, by the way you should, it will not help. And that time was not properly spent, because what did you gain from it, and what did you lose from it? If you're super obsessed with sports, these are examples I'm making up, what is the priority? Do you go to the friend and watch the game for four hours while leaving the wife alone? the whole time to take care of everything else? Is that true? If you do have an agreement with your wife about going off to some games or something similar, can you ask her in advance? What can I do for you to make your, th- your life easier, to make things easier here? Perhaps you could get the kids in bed and they're sleeping before you go, or do the laundry before you go, or you set up and make sure the dishes and the garbage is taken out before you go. We are offering Shalom Bayes classes. Call 1-800-SHALOMBAYESBASKETFORME.COM and we can help you out. But if you could do what you can, in all seriousness, to help out before you go, it would be more helpful. My wife has an idea of a shovel and bias basket. I have an idea of shovel and bias workshops. We're happy to help. But if everyone could think in this way on some level, I think there would be much more harmonious aspects to the world. Because unfortunately, too much people think only about me, even when it's supposed to be a we, and that's a royal we, you, the wife, and the kids. But sometimes people forget the royal we. Side point, it doesn't mean necessarily that she has to cook in the family. Men, feel free to cook. You can join the Cook Like a Man series. Join us on Zoom. Join us at 1-800-COOK-LIKE-A-MAN. We'll tell you how to do the cooking throughout the weekend for Shabbos. We figured it out down to a science, thank God, over the years. One of the best things to realize is what we can do for a spouse, for the spouse. Make sure to give a meaningful comment or a few each day to the spouse. You did such a good job getting everyone ready. Great job getting ready. Great job getting everyone out. And make sure to also check in on the day. Sometimes we think this is like, you know, common sense, but unfortunately, 
common sense, as they say, is not very common. Some people can go out the whole day without checking in once on the wife. That's crazy. I always tell my wife, you know, now it's time for me to see the kids. When the kids are done, my students are done, I say, I check in and say, you know, all done. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's it going? Not always common sense is not always so common, which is unfortunate and sad. We have to make sure to fix that. Because when we're thinking about commitments in life, think about how we go about those commitments and how we could fix things in general in life. Also not to expect all roles to be falling on the wife. In fact, by us, I try to actually roll reversal things. It's not a crime to cook. I'll teach you men. It's not a crime to do dishes. I'll teach you men. Not a crime to do laundry. I will teach you or to do baths or do garbage. I will teach all of this if you like. Make sure also to give the spouse what they want or need, not what you think they want or need. For instance, if they want you to help out and clean around the house and instead you buy a Roomba, there is a thing, a Roomba vacuum, for them, you're missing the point. Because first of all, it's not going to do a good job. Second of all, it doesn't go up any height. So if you have a tiny step like we do between the dining room, the living room and the, I mean the dining room and the kitchen, a three inch, it won't even make that. And all you're doing is making things worse. If you waste an hour finding and spending a ton of money on flowers when she really would have rathered you home at that time, you're missing the point. So always keep the spouse on mind. Always think what he or she would want from you and how you could spend time with them and how to take care of them. Side point, it should be common sense also every night to sit down and spend time. Whether you play a game, which is wonderful, or whether you... you you know, read together or talk together or watch something, whatever. However you can do every single night, it should be high priority to do so. My wife and I always try to find something together. We've been watching the, the cooking shows a lot of times and other things every night to unwind and to enjoy each other's presence. Because think about what's worth fighting about, what's worth really giving your commitment to, what's worth really going about it. I've even talked about this, by the way, side point with the non-Jewish people at work. And when I explain to them my philosophy, they say, wow, that's a nice philosophy. You and your wife have a good head on your shoulders. Because I, I talk about this with other people. For example, my coworker right now doesn't have anyone in her life. They should be zochah to find the right person at the right time. She has three jobs. And I'm like, that's crazy. And people say to me, why don't you get a second job? Why don't you get a third job? And why don't you do more and commit more and do more than you can? And I'm like, to what extent and what to what to what loss? You know, what are the gains and what are the losses? Okay, so maybe I'll have a little more. But what's going to be lost? Then I can't help out. I can't do anything for the wife. I can't do anything for the kids. I won't spend time with the wife just for what? A little money? Money is gone and comes more faster than you could say the word money. It's a really revolving reel. The Gemara talks about it's called a, a Gilgal. That's why it's called Zuz. The, the term for a money, Kesef, is called Zuz, especially in Aramaic, because it moves. It never stays stationary. Money comes and money goes. But happiness and memory, spending time with the kids, spending time with the wife, that's what really matters. You think your kids are going to remember how many square footage you had looking back in life? You think they're going to care about that? Or are they much happier to have a present dad, a present mom, rather than just getting a few more bucks? You don't have to have a mansion. You could have a very cozy house, is how we call our house. It could be a very cozy, very warm, very beautiful house. Priorities, commitments, looking at how we could go about things in the right way. You could also think about what's worth disagreeing on, what's worth fighting about. Aish once pointed out the phrase in your mind should be, is it worth losing your shalom bias about this? Is it worth it to lose the peace over this? 
Is it really such a big deal to, sh- to change into Shabbos shoes to say Mazel Tov at a Simcha if your spouse asks? Made up example, is it worth a fight? Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky's Zatzal would explain, as quoted from his book, Growing Each Day, our prescription for marriage is as follows. Listen to this. And he wrote 80 books over the years, I believe. The secret of peace in the home is the awareness that husband and wife are not two distinct individuals living in a contractual relationship, God forbid, but are one unit. If they love each other, they're also loving themselves. If they respect each other, they're also respecting themselves. In fact... Rabbi Razer points out in his Sefer, Shalom Rav. Rabbi Yosef Salavitchik draws a parallel between the Mishkan and our own homes by focusing on the vessels described in a parsha. By the way, you look at the Pasuk, very, very famous word, Why does Hashem use the word V'socham? Because the Mikdash is inside of us. The Mishkan is inside us, our spouses, and in the home at large. The Mishkan was a place to let Hashem in. And of course, our homes, we have to let Hashem in as well. I don't remember where I heard it, but the Hebrew word for man and woman, ish and isha, are different by two letters, that of the yud and the he. When Hashem is in the home, and the relationship the two are connected, but if Hashem is not allowed in, God forbid, all that's left is the aleph and the shin, which spells ish, fire, which is strife, and in and of itself is not the good foundation for a relationship, and it will not be a good relationship. Rav goes on to explain that the vessels for the Mishkan were basic elements in a home, like the table, the shulchan, the lamp, the menorah, and the chair, the aron for Hashem, the chair for Hashem, the golden mizbeach, and the offerings are what we do in the house, and that comes later. We should bring Hashem into our homes using these items, such as a table to serve guests, a bed to house guests, the lamp to learn Torah, and the like. It can also be said that the Aron can symbolize Torah, which should be the foundation for the couple. The menorah may symbolize Shalom Bayis, peace in the home, represented by the Shabbat candles. I always say when my wife lights, I feel this metaphorical aura. As difficult as the day is, as frazzled as the day, when the lights are lit, there's like this metaphorical blue light that permeates the home and everything changes and Shabbos comes upon us. A metaphysical feeling going through the house. That's why the lights should do for us. The Shulchan represents house hosting guests, singing, saying to return and learning. The Kiyor represents purity used for washing hands for the meal. The Mizbeach may symbolize sacrifices. The sacrifices a couple needs to make for one another in life and on a continual basis which draws them closer to one another. So someone might say, yeah, I work longer hours, I'm sacrificing, but what am I giving in the long run? I'm giving wife a beautiful house, money in the bank, and my kids a better lifestyle. But I'm sure, I never took this poll, but I'd love to take this poll. If you would ask a wife, would she rather her husband home more or make more money working? I really feel like a lot of times most would say home more. Because the sacrifices you think you're making are not the same sacrifices that the wife is thinking or liking or agreeing to. A key to a good home may be where there is a home full of Torah, mitzvahs and chesed, where it is shared by both spouses who prioritize to do things together and not lead separate existences, God forbid. By the way, the DOE always has hiring halls. If you want to finish your day at 2.55 as a therapist or 2.20 as a teacher and you want to be home by 3 to help out, let us know. We're happy to get you in an interview. <laughs> H.com points out with author Karen Wolfer Rappaport. Many married couples unfortunately lead parallel lives. Not a good thing. When one does whatever it takes to spend the least time or to purposely lessen time with a spouse, terrible, never should know from such things, you are leading parallel lives. Oftentimes you're not conscious of this process, but the impact, unfortunately, is very real. 
when you're involved in your own endeavors, your own concerns, your own friends, and even wishes and dreams at the exclusion of your spouse, you're leading a parallel life. Someone may stop me and question me and say, but I have my own dreams, my own wishes. How come I can't do that? I didn't say you can't do that, but I think you should do that at a time that's not at the expense of your wife. So I have my own shows, right? I have my own endeavors, my own book I'm working on, my own weekly project, my own songs, my own guitar, not at the expense of the wife. So when the kids are sleeping and the wife falls asleep and you're not tired yet, why don't you work on those dreams and aspirations? Or you have a lunch break at work and your wife is at work or you or whatever, why don't you use that time to do your own thing? It doesn't have to be to the to the detriment of time with your wife. It should be used as time that anyway is not being neglected from others. That would be my answer. It doesn't have to look or sound nasty for these people living parallel lives. It could be very quiet, very subtle, very insidious. But before you know it, you begin to understand you're going it alone and what should be a partnership. By the way, great book, Six Degrees by Riva Pomerantz, for anyone wanting to see how it's in writing, an example of this kind of a thing, what would be seen as a cold relationship, a parallel life. Highly recommended Jewish book, Jewish novel. Excellent, excellent book. I believe it was the Six Degrees one. Go check it out. Any Judaica store or the free lending library available. In a parallel life scenario, there's very little opportunity to give, to appreciate, to join, or to love. Physically, you live together under the same roof, but emotionally, you're miles apart. In Boratius, we're given a description as to how Adam and Chava, the first man and woman, came into being. They were created as a single person in an apparently unified state. It is said that Adam and Chava were back-to-back at that point. Then God blesses the back-to-back Adam and Chava to go about and to populate the world, for it is not good for man to be alone. In order them for, to fulfill this commandment, they are then separated. Now, Adam and Chava have a choice. They could remain back-to-back as separate entities, or they could turn around and relate face-to-face. We all confront the same choices of Adam and Chava in our relationships. Do we remain back-to-back, living separate, parallel lives, God forbid, or do we relate to each other face-to-face, honestly, consciously, and formally, having real connection? Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg explains that a back-to-back relationship is one in which each partner is involved in selfishly fulfilling their own interests. In contrast, a face-to-face relationship is where each partner acknowledges and respects each other's individual needs at the right times. Rabbi Ginsburg points to the fact that while people's backs are similar to each other, the face is a unique part of each individual. Therefore, relating in a back-to-back fashion indicates a lack of interest in the uniqueness of the other, whereas a face-to-face relationship expresses each partner's innermost considerations. When we are back-to-back, it's possible to cover the basics. Possible. The food could be bought. The chores can be delegated, the diapers can be changed, but it does not mean we are connecting emotion. It does not mean we see the other person. We can be busy with the daily grind and avoid facing our effective life, but this is not the state of oneness that Hashem wants or that a Jewish marriage aspires to. How do we create a mature, authentic relationship? Again, I'm no marriage expert, but listen to these things. Face-to-face is getting to know your better half. Their likes and dislikes, precious moments in their lives, their favorite composer, and the most traumatic event to happen in sixth grade. Very interesting that she says that because my wife is an actual sixth grade teacher. Everything about them, it has meaning for them and it is very personal. Turn to your spouse when they turn to you. Listen to your partner's longings and goals and make them yours. Appreciate them and help them to attain these yearnings. Cultivate gratitude for the unique human being that they are. Nurture your affection and admiration by reminding yourself why they are right for you. The more they feel seen, the more you will feel seen as well. 
Aish also points out from author Rabbi Jonathan Bienenfeld, there's good advice in the research of Dr. John Gottman, an expert marital therapist and author of the best-selling book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. I did not read that book, but this is what is quoted. Gottman speaks of the importance of what he calls love maps, a working knowledge of one's spouse replete with information about who they are and what makes them tick. What diff when difficulties arise between spouses, and they most certainly will, is our knowledge that helps us weather the storm. Can you articulate your spouse's greatest personal ambitions? What about their professional ones? What activities they find most meaningful, most stressful? Pet peeves? Favorite activities or worst fears? If money was no object, where would they live and how would they spend their time? Classic question to ask yourself also. If you had no worry about money and you could do what you loved and you could reflect on your favorite meaningful experiences of your life, where would you go, what would you do, and how would you spend your time? Side question. Seeking out the answers to these questions and increasingly detailed throughout life transforms relationship from a passive state of being into an active pursuit of understanding and ultimately admiration. Possessing such a detailed knowledge of your spouse is the difference between living parallel lives in a shared space and living a unified life joined by the deep knowledge that we can have of one another. If love is something you could fall into, which is very misnamed in secular culture you can just as easily fall out if it's something you like happenstance into you fall into a hole you fall into love you could easily fall out of the hole but when love is something that is intentionally crafted strengthened through every bit of knowledge we glean about our spouse that love is perpetually fortified even in the face of life stresses and setbacks knowledge is indeed power not the power to exploit or manipulate god forbid but the power to fuel relationship far into the future for a relationship the best effect in my opinion there has to be constant time together every single day you have to celebrate momentous occasions in a good way in a nice way you know figuring it out five-year anniversary 10-year anniversary going places you know taking time for just yourselves without the kids, going to a restaurant, going to a place together, really cultivating, prioritizing, and on a very simple aspect, each night, each time, there should be special time that is untouchable just for each other, again, whether playing a game or just talking or reading together and exploring and, and explaining and sharing, watching something together, doing something together. You could listen to a shear together, a podcast, a shear. You could read something together. You could just spend time together every day, like fun date nights and fun date themes as well. Take time to sing together with the family, especially on Shabbos, the Zemiros, and after Shabbos. You could break out the guitar. Hanukkah was great. I tried to break out my guitar every single day. And do what you can to make sure to have things together. The person must be put first. Prioritize every single day. It gives both yourself and your spouse something to look forward to each day, no matter how stressful things are that day, that you know that you'll have that time to sit down together and relax and share together. I talk about this oftentimes. My favorite time of the entire week that I look forward to the entire week is on Friday night when the kids are sleeping. We have our electric fireplace going. It has that zone, the aura, the lights of the Shabbos candles are still burning. And my wife and I read our Jewish novels when we're not you know, passed out from tiredness. You know, next to each other on the big comfy couch with the Shabbos, the, the ability to spend the Shabbos. Oftentimes I'll give my wife the book I just finished because I like to hear what she's up to, what she thinks of the characters, and then I could take a book that she read and what do I think of the characters, like a book club, a Jewish novel book club, to discuss 
the characters, the plot, the story. That is a zenith of the whole week. No one says you can't have your own likes and your own interests, but not to the exclusion or detriment of spending time with a spouse or prioritizing time with a spouse. I'm telling you, you can easily find time throughout the day to pursue those things and not to the exclusion or the detriment of your kids. Oftentimes, a lot of things that grind my gears, by the way, and I've seen this even on secular websites, is a person like in the middle of like a, a, I don't even know, like a call about the Jets game with his friend when he comes to pick up or she comes to pick up to pick up their kids. And I find that not good. I really try, no matter what's going on, to put the phone down, put the phone away so that I can actually greet my children, greet them, and not be. Because when a kid sees that you're on the phone, you're texting, you're talking, they think that the phone or the, or the message or the call is more important than them which obviously is not the case, and it should never be seen as the case. So don't you think that, you know, a grown adult who is supposed to be your spouse could feel the same way? We have to be better at that. Do your own interests on your own time when you're not otherwise spending time with the spouse or the kids, when they're sleeping, when she's sleeping, or when when you have your lunch break. Instead of checking the jet scores, do what you really are passionate about, but not to the exclusion of your kids or your wife. If I want to do something and I know it would bore my wife, I wait until she's busy with something else or sleeping. I mean, you don't have to take away from that time. Here are some made-up examples to implement with a few that you could try and see if it works for you. I'd love to talk with my best friend when he calls at 5.30, but that's high time, high crazy time. The kids are crazy. My wife needs help. I'm not going to answer the phone then. So I'll call back when she fell asleep at 10 o'clock because my friend is a late owl. I'd love to watch that documentary right now, but my kids need me, so I'll watch it when they're asleep. I would love to record my podcast at 4 o'clock when I have a lot more energy, but that would be to the detriment of needing to take care of things for the friend, for the wife and the kids, so I'm going to record it at 8.30, 9 o'clock when they're all sleeping. I'd love to play guitar every day at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, but believe that or I'm going to wait till I have my vacation from the DOE, which is a different schedule than my wife and kids, and it won't take away from anything. I have a day coming up. Hopefully, I could do it again. I had my days off when everyone else was not off, and I got to play a lot, and that was wonderful. Joe would love to watch his funny cat video on endless repeat that his friends send him, but his wife is asking him to play sudo- to play a game of Sudoku with her and a culture puzzle, so he's going to do it later, much later, once she fell asleep. Marriage and children are some of the biggest commitments in life. And relationships are like flowers. Without putting in the effort and the time with the right priority and focus, God forbid they wilt and die. This applies to all relationships, but especially marriage. We need to spend time with our kids also every day. Playing with them, being silly with them, reading with them, not just yelling at them and trying to control them, which is never possible anyway. Furthermore, we should check in with our friends, make sure they're doing okay. as well as with others, but not from taking the time away from them. I do try to catch up with my friends. I had a great conversation with one of my friends a couple of months ago. I actually met my friend for dinner, but when my wife had a chevrojas, I found that a win-win. So she had the chevrojas with her friend, and I had my catch-up dinner, like my mandate, my man time, with my friend. That was a win-win. It wasn't to the detriment of anyone else. The kids were sleeping, watched by a babysitter. That was a real win-win. We could think about how to go our, th- our way and think about how we could do different things to do what we can in our life to make sure that we can 
continue. I'm actually going to stop it here and I'm going to actually do something I haven't done before. We're going to break it into part two. Commit to. Join us next time here on Tani Talks Radio where we talk a topic for the week for the audience members to keep. And I'm your host, Tani. <laughs>